Today we're continuing our series through the letters of First and Second Corinthians. We'll be uh, probably taking a pause on that. Well, we will be taking a pause to that as we come to the Christmas season to to invite people to be a part of our church during the Christmas uh, time. We'll have messages geared towards the fact of Jesus coming and, and His arrival and what that means for us. But today, as we prepare for that, and we'll return to this series in January, um, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, this series we've been talking about is the Apostle Paul writing to this church in Corinth, the church that he loved, a church that he founded, a church that he he sweat drops of blood and tears with them. I mean, he, he was there in the nitty and the gritty and, and was there to help establish them. He loved this church. But as we've seen, this letter is not exactly the easiest letter to read. And while it may not be easy, while it sometimes might be harsh, it comes across ultimately in love and kindness. It is a demonstration of God's grace and, and the seeking of restoration for a people. And the only way that happens, the only way restoration happens, guys, is when eyes are turned from the self, when they are open and awakened and alert to the Savior. That is the only way real restoration ever occurs. That is the only way anything is ever made different. That's what changes everything. We talk about restoration, and, and I think the world wants it. You know, there are even shows about restoring old houses and seeing what can be done with just people that want to put their, their sweat and their hands into it and put the right tools to it and, and see something that was once really beautiful but has now become dilapidated but get just put back into place. And that way it may work for a house. That might work for network um, ratings on HDTV, but it is not what restores a soul. There are good things that can be done that we can choose to do to seek help, to seek therapy, to seek aid, but ultimately the restore, restoration of the soul comes when we are, our eyes are no longer asleep or focused on the self and they're open and looking towards the Savior. And when we do that, here's the thing. If something is going to change, then things are going to change. You ever heard somebody pray or ask, I just wish things were different. I just wish something would, would move or shift or change. And yet when it did, they weren't willing to move with it because, well, I don't like change. You ever been there? I've been there. Man, I wish things were different. Man, I wish things would change. Man, I wish things would get better. And then when they start moving, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't really really mean change. I really meant I want it to stay the same but look better. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And Paul is going to be addressing such activity in the church at Corinth as he's telling them to think about the fact of Christ giving Himself to pay the debt of your sins. And what does that exactly mean for you in your life? And if your eyes are open to Him, how are things going to shift? One of the things that's going to shift is your decision making. It's going to shift is your decision making. I want to ask you a question. When you're about to do something that requires action, you probably need the right tools, right? 
you know, if, if you're fixing something in the house, you probably need the right tools. You get your toolbox out or you get your work gloves and you find whether you need the screwdriver or the pliers or, or you know, a little bit of both or the ratchet set or, you know, the, the box cutter or what you might need to do the activity. If you're going to get dirty or it's going to hurt your hands, you might pull out the work gloves. You're going to use some things before you fully do the action. You're going to bring some tools to the table. Now, I want to ask you this question. When you're about to make a decision in your life, what tools do you use before you form that decision-making process? Whenever you're about to decide on what to do with your life, and it could be a big, big decision like, I just want to know who I'm supposed to marry. I need to know what college I'm going to. You know, those big decisions. Or it could be, I wonder what my day is going to look like. I wonder if I should get up now. Those kind of decisions. What are the tools that you use in your decision-making process? Maybe there are tools that, that you use to measure like this. Well, I need to see what my, what's going to demand of my time before I make that process. It's a pretty smart question, you know. You want to count the cost before you actually get involved in it. That's a good idea. We base our decision-making through the tool of what seems desirable to us. Well, do I really want to do it? You know, that kind of thing. That has a, a, a role to play. That's a tool, an instrument in our decision-making process. If it demands a certain amount of time, and if I really want to do it. Because let's just be honest, if I really don't want to do it, I probably won't do it. I probably won't. We use a tool and a resource like this. Well, what can I afford? I want the really big, big TV, but I can't afford the really big TV. So then the choice before me is to go in debt for the really big, big TV or just settle for the small TV or just stick with the big box that weighs 100 pounds in your house already. You know, those are, those are things we're going to think about. What can my resources afford? We, we use the instrument of this. What does social etiquette dictate? What does social etiquette dictate in this moment, how I decide? How I respond in the middle of my anger. How I react in the middle of my sadness. How I want to speak to this person. What does social etiquette dictate? What does society tell me is the right thing to do? We use tools and instruments like, what traditions do I hold dear? What am I going to be involved in this Christmas? Well, my family tradition is this. My church tradition is this. And so I'm going to use those as shaping my decision-making process. What do others think about it? What others might think. That's also something we use sometimes in our decision-making process. Before I do this, what are others going to think? Sometimes we do things that for, because of what other people think, we think they're going to be really impressed. They're going to think, man, that guy is sharp. Wow, that girl's got it all together. Do you see what they're driving? Or they're like, do you see what they're driving? You know, we wonder about those things. What others might think. We use the tool and instrument in our decision-making process of what past experiences taught you. Some people do this with church. Well, I went to church a long time ago with my family, and, well, I got burned at this one church. So let me tell you, that means every single church is that way. No, I don't think so. But sometimes what past experiences taught us it shapes our decision-making process, if we're honest. Well, we've been through the trenches we've waded through, the victories we've had, 
Here's one, and we'll be honest, this one affects. How does this affect my family? How does this affect my family? That's a part of our decision-making process. What time will it require away from them? Or, if we're honest, what time will it require with them? You know you were thinking it. We think, how would this might do with my employment? If I were to speak this or share this or open this box, how is this going to affect my job? These are all instruments, all tools used and that we remember and we think about, sometimes even subconsciously, when we are prepared to make a decision, some as simple as what am I going to do with my day, where am I going to eat my next meal, to big, big life decisions. But today, as we come to our time in God's Word, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to ask, what does the Scripture call for the disciple to consider, to remember, when counting the cost of our choices? So, would you stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word? We're going to be reading from chapter 6 of the letter of 1 Corinthians. We're going to start in the 12th verse, and we're going to go through verse 20. Now, some of the topics in here, your children are still out the door, so that's kind of good, um, so that you don't have to explain too much. Uh, but they're there, and it's a part of the decision-making process that was going on in Corinth. Here's what it says. Everything is permissible for me, but nothing not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not! Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is only is, is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but a person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Lord Jesus, use your word as only you can today. Teach us from it. And may it be your Holy Spirit instructing us, using me in this way, but help me be behind the shadow of your cross today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, Paul is dealing with some nitty-gritty stuff here. But he's coming from the basis of, I was with you in this church. We walked through the nitty-gritty together. We were in the trenches together. We worked together. We served together. We stood by each other's side. And here I am demonstrating clear care and compassion to you. But what Paul is also doing is he is responding to correspondence that had, that had been sent his way. When we talk about letters, 
When we talk about any Scripture in the New Testament, we have our ultimate goal to understand them is to look at the author, the audience, and the aim. We've already talked about this is from the Apostle Paul. He was an apostle, a missionary that that helped to found this church. And he's writing to the church at Corinth. and, And his aim is to help them understand what it means to have our hearts awakened to Christ and living fully from Him, for Him. But also, what we come to understand when we read the entire letter is, this is not the very first and only letter Paul has ever written to this church. In fact, it's more than two letters that Paul has written. We have First and Second Corinthians, but First and Second Corinthians talk about other letters he had sent them. These are the ones God preserved and, and praised, pro, provided for us, and, and he has put his authority over them. The other letters were letters. Just as you would send a letter. Just like if I wrote you a letter, like you may have received today. It doesn't mean there's anything holy about it. It just means that, hey, this is something I think you should know about. But God chose to preserve these for us. But Paul has been answering a lot of questions that the, the church has raised. So in the church you see that there is a difficulty in their lifestyle due to lack of devotion, due to an apathy of the doctrine of Scripture. We've seen that evidence in many of their lives. But we also see that many of them are seeking to know, all right, I've got questions about how this really plays out in my life due to what I've seen, due to what I've done, and due to what others are doing around me. How do I live? Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, and Corinth was this major metropolitan area on this isthmus between Macedonia and Greece, where there were all kinds of availabilities of pleasures. All kinds of entertainment. But there was also a very spiritual place. I use the term spiritual very loosely because it's not honoring of the Lord. It's spiritual in the case of, I believe there's something larger. I believe there's something bigger. And I want to do my thing with it. But in this case, in the city of Corinth, there was the temple of Aphrodite where... It was not uncommon for the practice of worship would be go to this magnificent temple that was honored by the Greeks and the Romans and to commit yourself to worship by hiring a temple prostitute and that being your act of worship. So, in the frame of reference of the Corinthians, they've had a whole lot of things to unlearn. But then there was also the whole problem in that day and age. According to Greek philosophy, when you look at Stoicism, when you look at some Platonism, they felt like the body was just something that was passing. Some thought it was evil, and it was meant to be punished. Deprived of everything. Can't eat any good food. Must be completely bland. You've got to beat and discipline discipline yourself to the point that you look in utter punishment and agony all day. And you've got to deprive it from any other activity, even those that God has allowed in marriage. Paul speaks about this in chapter 7. They felt like the body was evil, and so it's not to be even a part of God, but a God's will, but you know, you to just keep it separate and, and keep it tame. Others in that philosophy thought the body was, ah, 
It's here today and gone tomorrow, and I can do anything with it because it's not connected at all with God. So whatever I want to do is free game because it's my body, it's my choice. Wow, that's weird. I think I've heard that argument somewhere before, even in this day and age. And so Paul is writing back and responding to these quotes, if you will. That's why you see in the quotations when he says, everything is permissible for me. Then he goes, not everything is beneficial. When he says, everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul's saying, these are things I've heard you say, but you need to understand that just because something might be permissible doesn't mean it's beneficial. Just because something is permissible doesn't mean you need to allow it to have mastery over your life because you are to have only one master. But then he breaks it down. Why is he going through all this, doc, this, this doctrine and this, these rules and regulations and why you shouldn't do this? It ultimately comes down to something he's already stated before, but he comes back to it as a reminder. He says, when it's all said and done, here's what you need to understand. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. This is something that, that we see he's already stated in part in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It also reiterates what Paul would write to the church at Rome when he says, I urge you, brother, in view of God's mercy, to present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve that which is pleasing, God's perfect will. These are things that Paul fixes on. And he he doesn't let go because these are the centerpieces. All the other stuff is what is happening, what is rippled off that statement. What is absolutely taking this and fully unfolding it in our lives. And here is the reminder that helps us consider how we shall live and how we shall make our choices in this life. The question we asked was, what does the Scripture call out to disciples and to the church for them to consider, for them to remember before they ever make a choice, before they, whenever they're time to count the cost, what is it asking us? And here's the reminder. The reminder is this. One. Whose you are should have authority over who you are. Look at verse 19. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. We've got to come to a conclusion. If we're going to make right choices, if we're going to live righteously, just as God has made us righteous by Christ, If we're going to live echoing that as people that are resonating from that that gift of God's grace, we've got to understand and answer the question, who do I belong to? Who do I belong to? Now, I know in our nation, the topic of slavery, the topic of that, we automatically go to a place that it's like, really dark based on our nation's history. I understand that. But here is the truth of the matter. 
Jesus has paid the debt of our sin. He has given Himself for our freedom. But that freedom does not mean that Christ did it, now I can do anything I want. That freedom means I now live in gratitude, in desire to declare graciousness, gratefulness to the one who died in my place, rose again, and set me free. So ultimately, I've got to come to this point. Based on what Jesus has done for me, based on the fact that He has died in my place, He has risen again, He has set me free, and now, even even further than that, the Bible says that He lives in me through the Holy Spirit. I've got to declare, who owns this? Because the answer to that question will have ripple effects on many decisions from thereafter. If we are still convinced and still declaring that I am who I am, I own it all, I can do what I want, no one owns me but me, then what we've done essentially is said, God, I like you, I like the idea of you, I like what you do for me, but really I still want to own me. And taking that farther, if that's our statement, that's that declaration we've said, this idol is mine. I worship it. Because it's my master and not you. Paul's saying to the church, and make it sure you understand that he's writing to the church, those who have chosen to receive the gift of God's grace, those who have been saved, he's writing to them, if that is you, don't you know that you are not your own? You're not your own. And whose you are should have authority over who you are. It should be the precedent. Second reminder that's given to the scripture, given through from the scripture to the disciples before they make any decisions in their processes to remember what the purpose of your life is at any given moment. Not only recognizing whose you are should have authority over who you are, but remember what the purpose of your life is at any given moment. What is the purpose of your life? Everyone wants to know what the purpose of my life is. What's, what's the meaning of all this? What is the, the whole context? And I can't always tell you the very specifics down to the nail and, and blueprints of what your life's meaning is. But the overall scope of the building, the overall scope of your life is this, to be a temple of God, to be a living act of worship that's the purpose of your life at any given moment not just in the big decision moments not just in the sunday mornings moments but in any moment that was what the whole entirety of your life is meant to be and in that it trickles down to little narrow decisions at times now i'm not saying you should go read a doctoral dissertation before you order your meal at the next Coney Island. And it's not what I'm saying. But I would say that if you were to honor God with your body, then maybe what we order maybe needs to be moderated a little bit more. And I'm preaching to myself on that. 
I didn't get this way overnight. That's right. And I won't get out of this way overnight either. But everything of my life is meant to be that I am a temple of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago when Paul uses the same phrase that you are a temple of God. That the temple of God was a place where people from all over the world could come, whether they knew God or not, they could come and stand in the majestic adornment of this building, but more importantly, they could draw near to the presence of the living God. And if that's the case, then our lives are meant to be the same. Not that we're just put on a show of majestic adornment on the outside, but when people come near to us, because the Bible has said that God lives in us, we're not God's, but God lives in us, that He has chosen His grace to do this, then we need to people be people that are saying, my whole life is meant to be a temple of the Lord. And when people draw near to me, I'm hopefully what they're drawing near to is not the outside shell. They're drawn to the Spirit of God that lives and breathes within me. That's why Paul would write in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who lives, it is Christ who lives in me, the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. I carry him with me, and he has more authority over me than I have over myself. That I'm to be a living act of worship. Just as I said in Romans chapter 12, to be a living sacrifice. To be living acts of worship, though, as temples of the Holy Spirit, we must remember a few things. And that is that these bodies are, in fact, a dwelling place. Once again, God has said, I am not going to leave you or forsake you. He has said, I am with you even till the end of the age. He has said, I will be with you and I will be in you. That whenever you're talking about being a temple of the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about something that's completely metaphorical. Obviously, you are not a building of marble and stone stationary in one place where people come and stand before you and offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices on an altar. So in that sense, it's not completely literal. But in the other sense, you are indeed, just as the temple was in the Old Testament, the very dwelling place of God. That is an acknowledgement that we cannot just put to the side. Not only that, but you are a demonstrating portrait of God dwelling within you. The temple was a place where people could come and not only know it was the dwelling place of God, but they could see the activity of worship. In the same way, whenever people come around Christians, when they come near to the church, what they're to see in the lives of the people is not only that they are a dwelling place of God, but they are the demonstrating portrait of God's presence there. That there is a call to holiness. In the days of the temple, they had barriers put around the place and only certain people could go certain places. You had to have a certain title. You had to come from a certain heritage. You had to be a certain gender. You had to be of a certain tribe to be in certain places. For the Gentiles, they would have the outer court. 
And then they would have the court of women. They could go a step further. And then they would have the court of men. Jewish men. Only Jewish men. And then they would have the court of the Levites. And then in the temple itself, only the priests could go into the temple itself. And then there was a smaller, smaller room called the Holy of Holies, where only one person at one time of year who was called the high priest could go in one time to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the many. And there were signs. Rabbinical history teaches us there were signs throughout the building warning that should you choose to cross these barriers if you didn't match the the protocol, they would have the right to kill you. Because they were protecting the holiness of God. Now, I don't want to get this misconstrued. I don't want you to put up signs in your life that says, well, if you're not holiness and it doesn't meet this level, you come near me, I will kill you. Don't do that. It's just not a, not a good way to live. And not the way the Bible describes. But what they need to understand is when they come near you, Not that you're holier than thou. Not that you're better than anyone else. But that the Holy Spirit dwells within you and your choices in life are going to reflect and demonstrate that portrait. The portrait of worship. And it's going to be a demonstrating portrait because you as a temple of the Holy Spirit have a deliverance proclamation. One of the great things about the temple in the, Old, in the Old Testament is that it stood in this place and people from nations all around the world could come and not only see a testament that God's presence was there, but that the people of Israel were declared His special possession, His special treasure, and that He had delivered them through trial after trial after trial. That He was their great deliverer. And that temple sitting on the hill was just a cry out that, yes, God delivers, God saves. If we're going to be temples of the Holy Spirit, living acts of worship, then not only has there got to be this remembrance that our life is, our bodies are a dwelling place. And not only that, there needs to be a demonstrating portrait of actual worship going on in my life, not just on Sunday morning, by the way, but that there is also a deliverance proclamation that it is God who saved this. I don't know why. Even when you read the Old Testament, a lot of the writers would say, can you just comprehend why a God would ever save us as the people of Israel? No God has ever done that for any people. And yet God chose us not because we were the greatest, not because we were the most spectacular, not because we had all these possessions, not because we always did everything right, but God did it because He is good and a deliverer of the people who call upon His name. And so our life is not to say, God delivered me because I'm good. God delivered me because I look good. God delivered me because I act good. But because He is good. And for some reason, He demonstrated His grace to a wretch like me. It is amazing. We must remember that we are a divine possession that God has called us a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a peculiar treasure. That's what First Peter chapter two verse nine says that we are. That's just echoing the book of Exodus. That when God looks at us, what He looks at is something that He loves. Now, like I said, I know the idea of ownership. is not one that we look on fondly. 
in America when it talks about owning people. I want you to think about it this way. You consider your spouse, your loved one, your your special treasure. For those of you that have children, you consider them just your precious treasure. More valuable than anything else in their life. This is how God is looking at His people. It's not Him looking like, well, let me count this up in my vault like Scrooge McDuck. It's how much I own. It's so, I love these people. And I have not just loved them with my, with my words. I have loved them with a demonstration of deliverance. I have dwelled among them. I have demonstrated the full act of my glory to show that I am with them. And I love them. And they are to have no one else that has the authority and possesses their life like I do. That's why we're temples of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to counting the cost before we make our decisions in life, we need to consider this. That whose we are should have a lot greater authority than who we think we are. And second, we need to remember what the purpose of our life is in any given moment. Sometimes we get emotional. Sometimes we get frustrated. Sometimes we get all these kind of things that happen in our life. And when it comes down to it, before we make a decision, and and believe me, I know how easy it is to make a decision in an emotional, frustrated moment. But before it all comes down, we need to come down and consider something we probably already know. But we need that graceful and grace-filled reminder. God loves you. And God has a purpose for your life at any given moment, including now. Here's the third reminder from verse 20. We need to remember why we should listen, trust, and obey the high calling of the Lord. Here's the truth. People will only do that which makes sense to them. Did you know that? People will only do what makes sense to them. And you may say, well, I've done some really silly things, but it probably made sense to you in the moment. For you men, you've probably watched Lifetime or HGTV once or twice in your life because it made sense to you that your wife having the remote in that moment was a better choice than ESPN. That's how you made sense of it. People will only really do what makes sense to them. And so when it comes to following, listening, trusting, and obeying the high call of the Lord, how does that make sense to us? Because I'm really probably only going to do that which makes sense to me. Well, here's what I want you to consider in that moment. To consider the cost of Christ and His cross. Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Consider the cost, not of your decision, but consider the cost of Christ's decision. Whenever he was looking at the world before he ever created it, he knew what it was going to cost him. The Bible says he loved us before the foundation of the world. Before it was all, he knew what he was going to do because he's God. Of course he knows all of it. And yet He's the one that made the choice to begin creation knowing it would cost Him dearly to redeem it. 
And yet He willingly did that. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to me that God did that for me. That He did it for others. Those like me, those not like me. But when I consider the cost, and I compare the cost that He paid to any option that I'm trying to weigh, just no way to reconcile the difference. His sum will always be greater. His offering, His gift will always be greater. His price will always be greater. And Paul is saying, when you remember that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, this is where he adds to it as opposed to what is written in, in the third chapter. He says, you are not your own for you were bought at a price. Do we think about the price? Here's what I believe. And I believe the Bible echoes this. That when we remember the price that Jesus was willing to pay, man, our praise, our worship, it gets taken to another level. Because we can sing songs that are comforting, we can sing songs that are familiar, but when it comes down to counting the cost and remembering the price, man, our praise just looks different. It sounds different. How we represent and how we declare, how we resonate those words, it just means more. Because it's not just how pretty the song is then. It's how deep the payment went. Why should we listen, trust, and obey the high call of the Lord? Because we consider the cost that Jesus paid for us already. And that cost will always be greater than any decision we have. And second, we consider the glory of the Lord. Paul says, glorify God with your body. That's something about your life, just as it is with all creation, that creation that the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. That even you have a part to play in glorifying God. That's why it should make sense to you that, that in all that He is, in, in, in all that He has done, in all that He has said, He has invited you to play a part in bringing glory to Him. And that is not a bad thing. That is the greatest calling we could ever have to have our way in paying and demonstrating the glory of the Lord who is worthy of it based on what He's done. So let's track that back. Paul says the greatest reminder that we can have in this moment when we're thinking about what to do with our bodies, how to handle them, whether we are to indulge or abstain from certain foods, whether we are to indulge or abstain from certain activities, certainly we should abstain from immorality because the temple of the Holy Spirit is your body. Count the cost. Consider the cost. And then follow the Lord. Lord Jesus, I thank You so much for this opportunity we've had to, to be Your temples together. That we've had a chance to demonstrate and declare Your worship. To give You glory. We've had a chance to, to give an offering that we pray will magnify Your name in this community and around the world. We've given of these gifts that we pray will will change a child's life. We've had time to listen to Your Word. 
so that we can hide it in our heart. And Your Scripture hidden in our heart and Your Holy Spirit dwelling within our soul. Coming together, God, it transforms who we are. So Lord, in this moment, as we respond to You, and we may be weighing the cost, set our eyes on Jesus. Let us look full in His glory in His face. And these things of earth, I know they'll go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Because that's who You are. Help us, Jesus, to see You. In Your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed at this moment. I've shared with you the, about considering the cost of following the Lord. And if I'm honest, those costs are high. Because it means giving up the rights to this. To all that you have. It means yielding them to Him. But we're talking about the one who, who's offered the greatest of solutions to our greatest of problems. He's offered us the gift of this gospel. The good news that says and teaches us that this God, when we're talking about Him, He is big and He is glorious. And He is loving, but He is holy and just. And the problem of our sin is an offense to Him. But He didn't just walk away and say, I'll have nothing to do with them. He showed the greatest of grace by paying the price in our place. And the Bible says that each person is given the responsibility of what they will do with Jesus. Well, they will trust who He is and what He has said and what He has done or whether they'll reject Him and walk away. Everyone is given that personal responsibility. No one else can make the decision for another person. But based on that decision, we can have heaven and eternal life with God or we can walk away and be separated from Him forever and face an eternity in hell. We can also have a life that's not only waiting for eternity with Him in, the, in, in, in heaven but beginning here where life is transformed day to day by what Christ does within us and through us. And today... We live in the light of that gospel. That's why we do what we do. That's why we have church on Sundays. The gospel has made a difference in our life. It has brought peace to us. Peace from God that has made peace with God. And each week when we have this closing time of invitation, I usually ask this question. I ask this question for the purpose. It's not just so I can see who's saved and who's not saved. It's for us to have that weekly needed reminder of this is what God has done for me and I am ever grateful. It's for the church to personally grasp a hold of that. So today I want to ask the question again. Today if you're in this room and you know you have peace with God because you are right with Jesus, would you raise your hand? I just want to celebrate with you. If that's you today, amen, amen, church. I recognize there were some that didn't raise their hand, and maybe because they didn't understand the question, or maybe because they just didn't, couldn't answer honestly that they have that peace. And I'm going to ask you if you have 
if, it's, if you don't have peace with God today, if I can pray for you, if you don't have peace with God today, can I pray for you? And if, here's how I'll know how I can pray for you. If you'll just raise your hand today and say, Pastor, that's me. I don't have peace with God. I, I don't feel like I'm right with Jesus. I'm not right in my life right now. I just want to pray for you. I'm not casting stones. I'm not casting judgment. I really honestly care about you, and I want you to know that this church cares about you. But no eye is looking except mine. If that's you today, you say, Pastor, I don't have peace with God today. Pray for me. Would you raise your hand? I want to tell you that if that was you, and you need peace with God today, you can do it by calling upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does that mean? It means whenever you are convinced today that Jesus is who He says He is, that He does what He says He will do, and that He can save, you're calling upon Him in trust and yielding your life to His way. If you want to do that and discover the peace of God today, you can do it like by... by Simply trusting in the Lord. And you can pray a prayer like this, if that's you. Jesus, I admit today, I don't have peace with You. I'm lost without You. I'm a sinner in need of salvation. But I believe You are who You say You are. I believe that You, Jesus, are God who came to die in my place, and who rose again. I confess my sins to You and ask You to forgive them. And I confess my desire for You to save me. I ask for You to do that. And help me to live my life for You from this day forward. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now today I want to ask one more question with every head bowed, every eye closed. If that was you today, you said, that, Pastor, today I've, I've come to a place where I knew I needed to make that decision. And you prayed that prayer. If that was you, would you raise your hand? I, I just want to help you take your next step with the Lord. All right. We're going to have a few more moments as the music plays. And I'm going to be up here at the front. And this is a time of invitation. It's a time of response, not just for people that don't yet know the Lord, but for those who know the Lord to to get the prayer and counsel and encouragement they need, and to help come together with the church in their choice. So today, if you're here and you say, Pastor, I've been visiting here a while, I know that God has been working in my life and my family's life to unite with this church and become members, I want to be here to help you walk through that decision. If God is calling you to some kind of ministry, I want to help encourage you and equip you in that decision. But whatever it is, should you need prayer and counsel, I'm going to be down here for the next few minutes. And you follow as the Lord leads.